today uh, we will be in Ephesians 1 and we'll finish the first uh, major section of Ephesians 1 today. So turn with me there to Ephesians chapter 1. So today we finish up Paul's prayer of praise. And as you get there, yeah, how useful is a product guarantee? Uh, well, it depends on the product, right? It depends on whether it, it counts or not. If you look at even cookies, uh, cookies will have a product guarantee on them. And you can take that for what you will. Uh, actually, uh, I have a friend who one time got a pack of, I think it was Famous Amos cookies, and they were supposed to be filled with you know, cream in the middle, and it had no cream in it. And so they wrote a letter to Famous Amos, and they, uh, in, in response to their product guarantee, sent him a bunch of coupons for free Famous Amos cookies to, to make up for the one bad pack that he had, right? So it depends on the useful, it depends on the product, depends on the usefulness of the product. Uh, it depends on the honesty of the company that makes the guarantee, right? Because some companies just aren't honest, or they include such small, fine print that it doesn't even matter, right? You, you try and go and, and turn in a limited warranty or something like that, and they say, oh, that's not our problem. That's on you. And, of course, we probably are all experienced or been burned by the just-expired warranty, right? We, it breaks the hour after the warranty expires, and it seems as though it was intended to do that, right? Uh, so we, we know that, that they're not always useful. Um, what we come to today in the scriptures, and as we think about what Paul is in writing to the Ephesians, what about God's guarantee? What about God's promises? Should we trust the claims that God makes to us in regards to his offer of salvation through Christ? Today, I want us to see that God guarantees our future in Christ through the giving of the Holy Spirit. God guarantees our future in Christ through the giving of the Holy Spirit. So again, as has been our practice, I want to read the, the whole sentence, verses 3 through 14, but we'll focus on just 13 and 14 this morning. So the scripture says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. So remember that this first section in the book of Ephesians, this is a a praise to God, and it begins with that word in in verse 3, blessed or praiseworthy. Uh, Paul is proclaiming God as blessed or praiseworthy. And why is this so? Well, as we looked at verses 3 through uh, 12, We've seen that Paul has labored to describe the many ways in which God is praiseworthy, right? He has in Christ Jesus blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He has predestined his people for blessing since before time began. Before there was time, God had purposed and planned for his good pleasure the salvation of his people. The purpose of God for his people is adoption, being brought into his family. In all of this, so that the plan of God to glorify Jesus in summing all things up in heaven and on earth might be brought to fruition. And last week we saw how God's praiseworthiness, right? We, those are very general things that are true in creation and in salvation. And last week we began to see how uh, Paul applied this to the specific, the apostles and the first Jewish believers, how they were, were predestined, for the purpose of praise to God. And today we redirect the spotlight from another specific group of believers, and that is the believers in Ephesus, the Ephesian believers, the Ephesian Christians. And so let's see what that has to do with us and with them. And we'll see first sealed salvation in verse 13, sealed salvation. And the scripture says in him or in whom, depending on your translation there for verse 13, in him, and again, in whom, who are we talking about here? In Christ. We're talking about Christ Jesus. All of this has is centered around Christ. It should not surprise us that it is about Christ Jesus. We gather here today for the purpose of praise to Christ Jesus. We worship in the name of Christ Jesus. We exist because of and for Christ Jesus, what praise there is due to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit for all their work in the world and in our salvation. In him, you also. And again, it seems to be Paul shifting the direction of his argument from those who were first to hope in Christ. We saw that in verse 12 to you. And the you here seems natural to read that as. Paul's audience, who he is writing the letter to. Who is he writing the letter to? We can go back up to verse 1 and we see to the saints who are in Ephesus, to the Ephesian Christians. This is to whom Paul is writing. And the general nature of this letter, as we argued when we first uh, discussed those first two verses, seems to indicate that Paul intends this letter to be read by multiple churches and maybe that just first or predominantly became to be known to the letter to the Ephesians. And so uh, 
we might read then in this word, in him you, that that is all to whom Paul is writing, to those churches. But here's the, the reality for us today, right, is that the context includes us. Because Paul, through the administration of the Holy Spirit, through the gift given to him by the Holy Spirit, is writing this letter not just to Ephesus, but to Maysville, Kentucky. So he's writing to us. I think it's most appropriate we read ourselves into this letter. And what does he say to those whom he is writing to? Right, he says, In him you also, when you heard and believed in him. There's some stuff in between there, and we'll discuss that. But these are the two main things that he's saying, right? When you heard and believed. Or the King James Version renders that word heard as trusted. And why is that? Briefly, often in the Bible, when we see that word hear or heard, we're talking about something more than just, I had noise come into my ear and my brain processed it a little bit and said, yep, that's noise, that's language, that's music, whatever, right? Uh, we today make this distinction somewhat in our own language with the difference between hearing and listening, right? It's different to hear something than it is to listen to something. Uh, we might say, for instance, I know you hear me, but listen to me. Right, mom might say that as she's scolding us. I know you can hear me. You better be listening. Often it is the person who is uh, talking to us that determines whether or not we hear or listen, right? Uh, if it's just some random guy on the street yelling at us, we might hear him, but we probably won't listen. It might behoove us to listen if he's saying, watch out, there's a bus coming towards you. If it's our spouse telling us something, it probably really behooves us to listen, to grasp what is being said. Husbands, do you listen to your wives? Do you pay attention to them? Because they notice those things. Uh, and wives, do you pay attention to your husbands? Do you give them do you give attention to them? Are you always distracted, right? If it's God speaking, so take this out of the personal realm and let's go with God here. If it's God speaking, we had most certainly listen. Right? He's our creator. He holds all power. It behooves us to listen, to understand what he is saying. It's interesting, you go to the book of Revelation, and you see in the, in the first section there, right, there's letters written to the churches, and after Jesus speaks to the churches, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what's Jesus saying there? If you have ears, you better pay attention to what is being said to you, because it's the difference between blessing and judgment. Life or curse. If they don't listen, if they don't heed God's voice, he's going to bring discipline upon them. And all this to say that what's involved here in this word heard, in him you also, when you 
heard, that's more than just listening to noise come in. That's hearing and understanding what is being said to you. And what is it that the church has heard? The word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The content of the hearing, what they have heard and understood is the gospel, the good news. They have heard what God has spoken in truth. They have heard the way, the truth, and the life. And what's the gospel? That's a more complex question than you probably realize. Maybe you do realize that. And there's a variety of answers that can be given. But I want to give one brief one from the scriptures out of 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 1 through 4, uh, reads this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Right, so let's pause here and just ask, what is Paul saying? He's saying, here's the gospel. This is what you believe. This is what you stand upon. This is what makes the difference between life and death. Verse 2, And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he goes on there to talk about the various witnesses that witnessed the resurrected Christ. But this, what I deliver to you as of first importance, seems to be like an early, uh, early church confession. Christ died, was buried, and was raised. That's the gospel. Why did Christ die? For our sins. That we might have the forgiveness of our sins. Why was he buried? Because he was dead. You don't bury the living. If you do, you're psychotic, and that's a whole other issue, right? He was buried, and most uh, miraculously and wondrously, he was raised. He isn't dead. He was dead. He isn't dead. Paul reminds the Corinthian church of the content of the gospel, and it's about Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that though we are dead because of our sins and trespasses, and in other words, what's that mean? We stand condemned. We stand under judgment. We deserve the wrath of God. Even though we are dead because of our sins and trespasses, yet God has, through Jesus' death, paid the penalty of sin and through his resurrection, given all uh, who believe in him the hope of eternal life. Or we might say it this way, out of Acts 13, 38 and 39. Acts 13, 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is free from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. We'll just briefly say there, why, why, does, why does the preacher say that in Acts 13? 
because the law of Moses could free nobody. Instead, what the law of Moses did, and this was, by the way, by God's design, not by accident, right? So this isn't just God said, oh, no, what happened? Things got out of control, right? No, this is before the foundation of the world. God had planned these things. God had decreed such. Instead, what the law of Moses did, it bound them further up in iniquity, right? We could look to Romans. Paul to the Roman church says, when I heard the command, do not covet, all I did was covet, right? Because that's what the law does. It doesn't give, it doesn't produce righteousness in us. Rather, it creates every sinful desire to well up within us and spill out. And by the way, this is our true for us today. Our nature is so corrupted that we need no prompting to do evil. It comes naturally. Right? And to prove that, all we have to do is say, don't do something. Don't think of elephants. What's the first thing you do? Think of elephants, because you can't help it, right? Don't press the button. What do you do? It takes every fiber of willpower in your being not to press the button. Every desire to do to the contrary of what we have been instructed, that is what sin elicits in us. When we hear God's word tell us to flee from sin, flee from sexual immorality, flee from gossiping, flee from coveting, what is our natural desire? To disobey. Such is the prevailing nature of sin in us. But Christ Jesus did what we could not. Because when he heard the command, don't do, he didn't. He lived a holy and perfect life. He was without sin. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And in Christ's death and resurrection, in Jesus' work, we who are corrupted by sin, dead in sin as the scriptures describe us, are freed from death and from sin. Hear these words of grace out of Romans 6. Turn to Romans 6. <clears throat> I'm tempted to read the whole chapter, but we'll just look at verses 6 through 11. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I'll throw in verse 12 there. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Yeah. Right? Christ's death and resurrection, Jesus' work, frees us from sin and death. This is the power of God in salvation. 
Or as Paul says earlier in Romans, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And this is the reality of the hearing and believing back in Ephesians chapter 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, believed in Christ. These are the two components of the uh, salvation here set forth for us, right? Hearing, and that means understanding, it means comprehending, and believing means it actually did happen. That's what it means to believe something, right? It actually is true. It's not just some hypothetical scenario that we're giving and saying, oh, that could have happened. No, when we say that Jesus raised from the dead, Jesus was dead, and he's not dead now. Right? That's what it means to believe. It's true. What is this power that is given unto us in salvation? We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The gospel comes with power, and there is no belief in the gospel where there is no gospel power. We are marked by the Holy Spirit when we are saved. There is a change in those who hear the gospel and believe it. There has to be. We're we're talking about the nature here of the difference between Christians and non-Christians, believers and non-believers, those who are saved and those who are not saved. There has to be a change in a person who is saved because the Spirit indwells all those who call upon the name of the Lord. So we might ask, how do we receive the Spirit then? Well, we receive it in our salvation. Right? It's the regenerating work of the Spirit, that work which gives us new life, that we are then able to see and hear and understand the gospel. Paul writes to Titus in Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but how? But according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So how are we saved? How do we receive the Spirit? That's asking the same question, right? How are we saved? How do we receive the Spirit? Not by our works. We don't earn it. We don't buy it. We are saved by God's mercy through or by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Or we might say in a phrase that we're probably more familiar with, we must be born again. Under the cover of night, one of the Pharisees come to speak to Jesus with him about his teachings. He's heard Jesus' teachings and he's interested. He says, Everyone knows that you can't do the things you do unless God is with you. 
And how does Jesus respond to him in John 3? John 3 verse 3 tells us Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And the Pharisee Nicodemus responds to this with some incredulity, right? What does he say? He says, what am I supposed to crawl up in my mother's womb again and be born again? What, is that? what are you talking about, Jesus? You're crazy. You're talking foolishness. John 3, 5 through 8, Jesus answered, truly, truly, by the way, the word truly there is amen, amen, amen. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. The Spirit goes where He wills, and where He enters, He brings with Him new life. To simplify this, how were the Ephesian Christians saved? Because the Spirit entered them and allowed them to hear the gospel and believe it. And the Holy Spirit sealed them, marked them out as Christians. You're not a Christian because you've marked a box on a demographic sheet saying, yes, I'm Christian. Boop. That makes me a Christian. No, you're a Christian because the Spirit of God has marked you indelibly forever. And that behooves us to consider a second question. What does it look like to have the Spirit? So if believers have the Spirit, what does that mean? What does that look like? What does that entail? Well, Paul here in the Ephesians writes that we have been sealed with the spirit of promise. And so does that mean that every Christian has a little mark somewhere on their body that if you find it, you can say, oh, yep, that's a Christian. Now, right, we're talking about spiritual things here. So what does the spirit produce in a Christian? There are some who believe that the presence of the spirit comes with fits and babbling. You start gyrating and, and rolling around and, and speaking nonsense. There are some who say that the Spirit's presence has to come with miracles. Unless the dead are being raised and the terminally ill being healed, there is no presence of the Spirit. We don't have time to discuss all the ways in which so much of this kind of doctrine is wrong bad, and sometimes just plain out evil. Um, and if you want to discuss that more afterwards, I'd, I'd be willing to talk to you about that, what that means. We don't have time to discuss the bad, but I do want us to focus on what the Scripture says. And so what does the Scripture say that the presence of the Spirit comes with? What does the Spirit produce in the life of a believer? Well, turn to 1 Corinthians 12. There's a couple of things here that I think it's helpful to look at. 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll first look at verse 3. The first thing that we could say that the Spirit produces is a right confession or a true confession. That is what we say and believe is true and right. And Paul gives an example of this to the Corinthian church. He says, 
And in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, therefore, so why is that therefore? Because he's talking about spiritual gifts. And he's talking about in verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. So there's an issue that Paul's dealing here of false gods. So what happens when the true God is believed in? Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And what Paul's writing about here is not just saying Jesus is Lord as though it's some kind of magic incantation. Right? We could say that all the live long day. We could force people to say it. That doesn't make them a Christian. It's about a true confession. If you can say that Jesus is Lord, that he is king over all, and that includes you, by the way. If you can say that Jesus is Lord, then the Spirit is at work in you. If you know that deep down in your gut that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is and will reign and rule over all things, then the Spirit is at work. <clears throat> and contrary to that, to say Jesus is accursed is to not be in the Spirit. The Spirit cannot and will not produce anything that is contradictory to the truth. The Spirit will not produce a lying confession. Why do I emphasize that? Because there are many who claim to speak prophecies, who claim to say, well, God told me. I got a message from God, and God told me this. And they are wrong. Uh, they're, maybe they're just, literally, they're just wrong. They say, God told me that in two weeks, we're going to have a bad thunderstorm. And in two weeks, it's the most sunniest, calmest weather that has ever existed in the history of the earth. Right? They, so sometimes they're just wrong. Not only that, though, sometimes they directly contradict the scriptures. So they can't say, God told me that it's okay if you're in an adulterous relationship to leave your wife and get married to, to the person you're having an adulterous relationship with. God doesn't say that. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that. Right? That's not the Holy Spirit speaking. It may be their own natural inclination speaking. Uh, it could be that they are the mouthpiece, though. For the evil one uh, or his minions. So, yeah, they're speaking under the Spirit. They're speaking by the Spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. So, be wary of any of those who claim to speak on behalf of Jesus and says anything that contradicts him. So, the Spirit produces a right confession Jesus is Lord. That's what the Spirit produces. The second thing is the Spirit gives gifts of grace. And again, I want us to see that in 1 Corinthians 12, and this just in verse 7. Uh, chapter 12 is all about spiritual gifts, but I want us to just consider verse 7 here, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. 
to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And Paul goes on there to describe the types of spiritual gifts that are given. Uh, they, these are gifts of grace to believers to build up the church. There are those who are given the spiritual gift of teaching to help the church understand the scriptures. There are those who are given the spiritual gift of service to come alongside and accomplish the many things that need to be done within a body. There are even, the scripture gives as example, gifts of administration. Do we think of administrators as a gift to the church? We ought to, because they're how uh, the organization of everything takes place. They're necessary. All that to say is, if you evidence spiritual gifts, if you have a spiritual gift and you're using it to build up the body, guess what? The Spirit's at work in you. Third, and significantly, the Spirit comes with a changed life. And for this, I want us to look at and consider Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 and verses 22 through 24. Galatians 5, 22 to 24, and I'll just start out here because it's obligatory. The fruit of the Spirit is not a watermelon. If you don't know that song, you can go look it up later. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The Spirit's presence in the life of a believer produces holy character. The Holy Spirit creates in the life of a believer a changed disposition. Romans 8 tells us that it's by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. In other words, it's by the Spirit that we can kill the old natural self, that we can crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. It's by the Spirit that we are sanctified, that is made holy, made into the likeness of Christ himself. Because we don't produce holiness in ourselves by ourselves. It is only through the Spirit's power at work in us. And so if there is no holiness, if there is no good, if there is no peace or patience or love or joy, then the Spirit may not be present in you. And that brings us to a third and necessary question. So, so right, all, we've talked about, we're discussing this issue of what does it look like to have the Spirit in the life of a believer? I encourage you to examine yourselves along those measures. What is your confession like? Do you have gifts of the Spirit? What's your character like? By the way, it's not a, a one flash over, although sometimes it is for some people. God works miraculously in some people to utterly change their disposition and demeanor in an instant, and it's to the praise of His glory. Some of us are stubborn, and it takes a lot longer. 
But God is at work to sanctify us and change us. So do you see the trajectory of your life moving towards holiness, moving towards this fruit of the Spirit, or away? But this third necessary question is this, what does it look like to not have the Spirit? Because the reality is that there are many who profess themselves to be Christians, but live like the dead and sin world around them. There are those who call themselves Christians, who commit despicable acts of wickedness, not as a mistake in a moment, but as a pattern or a lifestyle of sin. There are those that the Apostle John calls who commit the sin that leads to death. And he says, we don't pray for those. What's the point? Paul warns his son in the faith, Timothy, of such people. Out of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy verses 3, or chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. By the way, if this was true in Timothy's day, in Paul's day, how true it is in our own day. Paul warns his son in the faith that there are those who will have the appearance of godliness. Did you notice that at, at verse 5? Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And what's the point here? That there are many who have great external shows of religion. There are very many religious people. There are people who go to church every Sunday. They attend Sunday school. They go to midweek meetings. Some of them teach Sunday school. Some of, some of them stand up in a pulpit and preach every Sunday. But they deny the power of the word of truth in their actions and in their hearts. There are many who call themselves Christians, but whose deeds are lawlessness. And by the way, that's just not me ranting and raving up here. That's what the scripture says. That's what Jesus himself says. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. What's the point in all this? It's to say that there are many who have a profession of Christ, but no possession of the Spirit of God. The Spirit produces change in a believer. But where there is a professing believer and no change in heart or life, there is no believer. Let me say that again. Where there is a professing believer and no change in heart or in life, there is no believer. It's a contradiction in terms. It cannot be. Ever ought we examine ourselves to ensure that we are in the faith. 
Ever ought we to check to see if we have indeed been born again? It is our very souls that is at stake. What more important work do we have to do? And yet how little we attend ourselves to it. It would be more profitable for us. Listen to this because this is uh, controversial in our culture. This is not how we think. It would be more profitable for us to take a week to examine our souls than it would be to take a week and go to the beach. Now, we don't think that way. But do you realize the value of your eternity? How much we need to heed this. And by the way, I include myself in that. But there's more to say of the Spirit in the next verse, back in our passage in Ephesians. In verse 14, let us consider a guaranteed inheritance. So secondly, a guaranteed inheritance. The Holy Spirit, right? Verse verse 14, who is? The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. And that word guaranteed means something like a down payment. He is the down payment of our inheritance. Or we could bring it into the real estate world. It's something like earnest money. You bind a contract by giving a small sum of money to the person who is selling you the property as a promise to say, I've got more where this is coming from. Here's $1,000, I'm going to bring you $100,000. do not worry, it's coming. This is my promise. This is my pledge that I'm going to fulfill this contract. Now, granted, what's the difference between contracts like that and what God is speaking of here is that what is being written here of God is that he will never break his promises. God cannot lie, and so we, when he says something, he does it. We, by the way, don't do that way. Right? We make promises and we break them all the time. He who gives this promise gives the Holy Spirit as proof that we will inherit what he has promised we will inherit. And what has he promised to give us? An inheritance, and what is this inheritance? Eternal life. We see this flavor of it in Romans 8.23. Romans 8, 23. Not only the, the creation, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul writing there talks about how The creation is groaning under the weight. They're revealing, creation is waiting for God to reveal the sons of God. To what end? Because the creation knows that at that time it will be remade, it will be renewed, it will be set free from the curse of sin. And Paul says that we too, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we who have been given the guarantee of the Spirit, we who have been given the pledge of the Spirit, we have been given the down payment of the Spirit, Hope, look forward to, eagerly wait for the redemption of our bodies, the giving of eternal life. 
And by the way, as we have already considered today, how amazing is the grace of God to give us so great a gift as the Holy Spirit as a pledge for the promise to be fulfilled. He could have said, oh, here, here's a little something extra. Uh, here, here's a little joy that you can have now and then. He gives us the best thing he could give us, the Holy Spirit. He doesn't give it grudgingly, but he gives it joyfully as it's a down payment. And this is the sureness of our faith in Christ, that all will be accomplished according to his plan, which entails our being brought to our Lord's side and mansions bright and blessed. That's a promise and God will fulfill it. And we know God will fulfill it because he gives us his Holy Spirit as proof as pledge that he will fulfill it. Or as Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, right, this may be familiar to us, but let us again re- reconsider it. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Right, Paul writes of sureness. Why is Paul so sure? There are many in our world that are sure of nothing these days. We can't even be sure of the weather. Why is Paul so sure? Because he has the Holy Spirit as proof, as pledge, that God who never lies has promised, and what he has promised he will bring to pass. God has begun a good work in the lives of believers, and in the day of Jesus Christ, all those who have confessed Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead will, and that's not maybe, it's not might, they will be presented before God as holy and blameless and above reproach. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is your confidence in the work of God in you. Though you may stumble and fall, Though you may walk through very deep and dark valleys of seeming death. Though you may not see how God can take the mess of your life as it is now and do anything good with it. God will accomplish his work in you. He is working working all things together for your good to conform you to the image of his son. The Holy Spirit is in you and changing your dispositions. He gives you a true and right confession. He gives you gifts for the benefit of others. These things are proof that God's intention to fulfill all his promises towards you in Christ will come to fruition. As Paul says and writes in 2 Corinthians 1 verses 20 through 22, 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Believers who struggle with depression, God has given you a guarantee for his love of you. 
Though it may be difficult to discern in the midst of darkness, never forget the love of God towards you in Christ Jesus. It is sure. It is certain. As surely as the Spirit dwells in you, so God will keep you to the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That's the way the ESV renders the Greek here, and it's this perspective for, from our perspective, right? It's, it's our viewpoint of it. Uh, it could also be rendered, um, for instance, the King James and other translations render it something like, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, which that's a God, God perspective, right? God's keeping us, uh, guaranteeing through the Spirit's presence in us uh, the inheritance which is God's possession, or it's the inheritance, which is our possession. And either way is true, right? Either way is true. I prefer to see it from God's perspective. I believe what, what is Paul is, is in view here, what he's writing about is when God redeems his people and he has his people as his possession in full for all eternity. Right? In this way, we look towards the final day when Jesus Christ gathers his people from every portion of the world, every corner of the world to be by his side forever. The dead in Christ will be raised and we who are alive will join them. We could sing when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout the victory. And that's the end goal of this, all right, right? Look at verse 14 at the end there. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Why does God save anybody? To the praise of his glory. Why does he give believers an inheritance? To the praise of his glory. Why does he give a pledge, the Holy Spirit, why does he give a pledge of the believer's inheritance? To the praise of his glory. Why does he fulfill his pledge and promise? To the praise of his glory. Do we get it? It's about God. It's about his praise and his glory. The great end of creation, salvation, eternal life is to the praise of God's glory. So what do we do with all this? Paul begins his letter uh, of Ephesians here praising God, right? Pronouncing God blessed or praiseworthy. And every step of the way, he has proved that God is indeed worthy of praise. Brothers and sisters, as Paul has focused in on the church, those to whom he first wrote, he also focuses in on us today. He has shown the glory and grace of God. He has shown God to be praiseworthy. God has graciously given to us everything necessary for life and godliness. He has given us a guarantee of his purpose to complete the good work that he has begun in us. Jesus is, after all, the author and perfecter of our faith. And brothers and sisters, you can live confidently in this world, knowing that the presence and power of the Holy Spirit within you is proof of the purpose of God for you. He will fulfill his promises towards you. And to that we say, Christ Jesus, be praised. As a church, what do we do with this? 
Well, one way that this impacts us as a body of Christ is that it's incumbent upon us to declare those as members of this church who are indeed members of the body of Christ. Because church membership is not a club. We're not Sam's Club. We're not Costco. We're not the Lions Club. We're not the VFW. It's not something you buy your way into so you can get some perks. Church membership is also not a passing fad from some generations ago. Uh, some churches adopt this perspective. Oh, we don't have membership. That's old and stodgy. That's stuffy stuff. We don't do that here. No, it's important because church membership is a vital way that we recognize in others the evidence of the working of the Holy Spirit in them. And when some, someone joins the church, we are saying that we have witnessed the work of God in them. And this is why it's so important that we get it right, why we take time to truly consider the person who is before us, consider their confession. It's not a perfunctory function that you fulfill when you vote someone in as a member. It's also why church discipline is so important. What we are doing in church discipline is calling a person back to God to be reconciled with God. And throughout the process, we're underscoring the importance of the Spirit of God in the life of that believer. Because the Spirit of God will, in a true believer, produce repentance. It'll change their lives. We'll see a new life, a change in heart, the killing of sin and the walking in holiness. And we cannot, in good conscience as a church, continue to call someone member who does not evidence the spirit. We harm the testimony of the gospel when we do such things. Worse, that's pretty bad, but I dare say worse is that in our silence about the sin in that erring member, we give that erring member assurance of a salvation that they may not have. For your consideration this day, I would ask you, do you have evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Is there evidence in your own life that you are indeed born again? Do you really believe that Jesus is Lord? Have you made a right and true confession? Is your life bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Again, I'm not saying, do you always love others? Do you always have joy in your heart? Do you always have patience and peace? But do you have more patience and peace today than you did a year ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago? Right? These are not inconsequential questions because the difference in our answer of them is one between life and death, heaven and hell, inheritance and the wages of sin, which is, by the way, death. And understand, friend, that if you don't listen and believe the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, you will experience the wrath of God for all eternity. God will judge you for your sins you stand condemned before him forevermore. And you may think that harsh because you don't understand what your sin is. You think it's harsh because you don't know how God, how holy God is. Because even little white lies are evil, ranked treason. 
yet God has made a way for the forgiveness of sins. He has, through Christ Jesus, bought redemption for his people. He has, through the blood of Jesus, paid the penalty of his people's sins. And you can be one of his people if you confess your sins before him. Right? If you tell the truth of, your, of who you are. So I call you today to repent. Turn from your sins and turn to God. Turn from the evil things that you love, the evil things that this world applauds, and turn to God. Look unto Christ Jesus. Believe the truth of the scriptures. Believe what the scriptures declare about him. Believe the gospel and be born again. Pray to God for the sake of your soul and ask him to do what only he can do in you. And once that happens, seek him in all your ways, right? Turn to him, read his word, walk in the power of the promised spirit. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we do pray, uh, Lord, that you would have mercy, that you would have mercy and allow uh, those who have never heard the gospel to hear it this day. Father, we know that they may have heard of these things. We may have heard of these things. We may have sit for many years under teaching in the scriptures, but we've never really heard them. We've never listened. We never grasped the under and understood their meaning. Father God, have mercy and give your spirit that all who hear, all who have ears, that they would hear and believe. Father, do that work which only you can do. We pray, we plead, we ask for their sake and ours. Father, we pray that we would evidence to the praise of your glory that the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Father, we pray that that would be increasingly so. We pray, Lord, that a watching world may look at us and have reason to praise you because of us. For Father, that is what we want to do. We want to bring you praise, not just in our lives, not just through our lips, but through the lives of others around us, through the lips of others around us. Father, we want you to be glorified. We want Christ to be exalted because he is King of kings and Lord of lords. We want the spirit to be praised because he is God and there is no other. Father, help us to believe these things, to live these things, to the praise of your glory. So we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.